0: Bless him, he'll be blessed. Um, okay, so in the UK, um, 2022 was a political comedy. It was kind of like a satire TV show that unfortunately was actually set in a reality, um, unlike, you know, a utopia or something like that. Uh, The UK released a new episode each week that left viewers dumbfounded. You either cried or you laughed, or maybe you just swore under your breath. Um, In just four months, the UK had four different Chancellors of the Exchequer. That is the government's chief financial minister, like a super big deal. Um, There was Sunak, Zawi, um, Kawating, and Hunt. That was unprecedented in British history. Um, Then there were three different prime ministers, Boris Johnson, Liz Trust and um, Rishi Shunak, who's the current one. And then in that mix, for different reasons, the UK saw two different monarchs as well as Queen Elizabeth died and Charles came to the throne. It was a big year. Now about the political situation, one source says this, it paints a picture of a rudderless government that has no clear idea how to manage the country's coffers and a political party unsure how to chart its future. I was over in the UK uh, in 2022 during October when a lot of this was going down and it became a joke. Who will be prime minister next month? Um, Liz Trust was the shortest prime minister in English history. 50 days. I saw 30 of those. So there we go. That's a big slab. It was madness (laughs) over there. The big issue at the time was one of leadership, of seeking a leader who will lead us Who will be the one who will bring stability, unity, prosperity, certainty and just kind of sanity, right? Um, And so as we open the scroll, the first scroll of Samuel is written on two scrolls because they ran out of room on one because it was so long um, and it ends with Saul's death. The pressing question is one of leadership. There was a leadership crisis among God's people unlike anything that was going on in the UK last year. Not long after Joshua's passing, the political, religious and uh, social situation in Israel had spiralled downward into chaos and it had lasted decades and decades and was still uh, going on. God's people kept rejecting the Lord and kept turning to idols and the wicked practices of the nations around them oppressed by nation after nation, Israel would eventually turn and cry out to God. And in his mercy, uh, the Lord would raise up a leader and he would save them. But as that leader passed away, well, God's people turned against him again. And so chaos ensued. The consequences. Well, if you were to flick on uh, the TV in Israel, you would see this being played out. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That's madness. Leaderless, God's people had become rudderless, morally compromised, religiously corrupt, spiritually diluted and politically In disarray that had just recently resulted in a civil war. These were not happy years. And it is into this turbulent um, turbulent, um, period in chapter one we meet a heartbroken young woman longing for a child. The story starts with the grief and the anguish of Hannah and her great prayer, one that the Lord will answer. The son will be the first that will be given of three leaders that the Lord in his mercy will raise up and then the whole story will center around them. Samuel, the prophet, Saul, Israel's king, and David, the Lord's king. 1 Samuel is a story of battles won and lost, the rise of the kingdom. It's the Messiah's origin story um, and individuals along the way that are involved in this dramatic change. There are precious friendships. There are valiant and righteous people. And there are the devious and the foolish. There's plenty of comedy and tragedy. It is a story that is deeply personal as God intimately involves himself in the lives of his people as at the same time he is sovereignty and inv- sovereignly involved in the big picture um, of all that happens. So 1 Samuel is primarily a book about leadership. It is a book for you as God's people and it is for you as young leaders and it's for me as a little bit of an older leader as we follow these three main characters the question being asked okay is what kind of leader does God's people need what kind of leader does God's people need not what do they want but need they're two very different questions aren't they That is important. That is the question to take home and don't forget it and keep asking it. What kind of leader does God's people need? With that in mind, please pray with me and then we're going to read today's passage. Lord and God, may we know you more clearly, love you more dearly, And follow you more nearly, day after day. Amen. Okay, so. The story so far, I've given you a bit of an idea. Let's run up to chapter seven. Um, Here we go, 1 Samuel. You can open your Bibles and follow if you like, or you can listen, listen along. you need a Bible, let me know and we can just grab one from over there for you. Okay, go pages. Okay, so 1 Samuel chapter 1, it starts there with the birth of Samuel. That's the Hannah story, chapter 1, 1 to 20. And then we see um, Hannah's dedication of Samuel Um, In the rest of that chapter. Um, And then we see Hannah's great prayer there. um, As um, she gets a child in chapter 2. Then we're introduced to Eli's wicked sons. Uh, Then we see a prophecy against the house of Eli. Because his sons are no good. They're corrupt. And then in that messy um, political and religious setting, the Lord calls Samuel. And that's that classic moment she probably done in like kids' church or Sunday school where uh, the, the Lord, you know, calls and Samuel's like, here I am. And then he goes to Eli and goes, hey, Eli, you like called me. And he's like, no, I didn't go back to bed. Um, and then it happens again. He's like, go back to bed. And then the third time, Eli gets it and goes, oh, so like God, God's calling you. Say, here I, here I am your servant is listening. So that's the kind of the birth, the youth and the call of Samuel in chapter one to four. So that's the slab that's taken place. Then we kind of move to a next slab in chapter four, all the way to where we arrive at chapter seven, which is kind of the story of the ark. Um, so what happens is there's a battle. The Philistines capture the ark Then with that comes the death of Eli. And then there's the birth of Ichabod, which is the glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. It's a really tragic birth. Um, Then we see the Ark of the Lord go around the Philistine territories. So he goes to Ashdod and Ekron. um, And we see the Lord behind enemy lines, if you were um causing absolute chaos um for uh those guys um and their god dagon keeps falling down um so they put the ark in the temple and the god of dagon um they get up in the morning it's like whoa the the god of dagon is like falling on the floor in front of the ark of the covenant it's like yeah bow to the master um and then eventually the ark is then returned to israel and then sits in sort of a family house for about 20 years um, and then we get to where we're about to read now. So that's a super quick little bit of an overview um, to give you a bit of an idea. So in in threes, I would love you guys to read. To oh, actually, um, actually, yeah, go, yeah, go threes. Um, and if you can read um, chapter seven and chapter eight of one Samuel. Uh, together. So get, get in little huddles um, and take, take a bit, read as you're comfortable. Um, when you've read enough, you can say tag and then someone else can pick up that, okay? So go for it. Brilliant. All right, well read, everybody. Good job. Okay. Now, there are plenty of things in life uh, that you and I give ourselves to, aren't there? Lots that we give our time, our energy, our money and our thoughts to that are pretty non-consequential. They're simply necessary in just kind of everyday life. And then uh, there are the things that we give ourselves to that are uh, more existential, central to who we are. The core drivers of what gives um, me and you... Our true sense of significance and and happiness, right? Our species has a perpetuality to look to something or someone to provide us with our fundamental significance and happiness, don't we? That is often what absorbs our heart and, and, and captures our imagination above all is normally what we absolutely can't do without, deeply scares us not to have, and sees us setting our life up um, and around, obtaining and um, preserving whatever that thing, that person is. We look to this thing or person to ultimately lead us to that good place of significance and happiness uh, that we seek. This morning, it is seeing and holding God as the one we look to as enough to provide this, which is what we are going to see Israel wrestle with in chapter seven and eight of 1 Samuel. This sermon uh, sets the scene and lays the foundation of our leadership in more general, and then Mikey will go deeper into leadership as he looks first at Saul and then David. So my first point is God is the great king. God is the great king. The lost ark has been returned to Israel and it's been 20 20 years since that awful day of defeat, the Battle of Ebenezer. Since then, the Philistines have come to uh, live deep within Israel's ancient borders And they continue to creep further in. They remain an ever-looming threat. The Philistines, Israel's enemy, are well on their way to establishing establishing themselves in Israel's patch uh, for good. But a moment for Israel arrives. Building over time through Samuel's ministry, a change among God's people is afoot a return to the Lord, a return of the people to the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then rid yourself of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Samuel calls the Israelites to show the genuineness of their heart and the seriousness of their all by putting away the gods that they had put first in their lives and putting God back as number one. They'd given themselves to these gods to provide the security Uh, that they wanted to build their identity and to create a sense of national dignity. These good things, these significant and happy things, are what they'd been longing for and struggling to obtain since entering the land. The Lord had promised to provide Israel with all these good things, and more, really. But these would be enjoyed as they trusted the Lord and him only, and expressed that trust in obedience. i say that again. These would be enjoyed as they trusted the Lord and him only, and expressed that trust in obedience. Lived a life of worship, really. You see, Israel had moved away from fully trusting in God by bringing in deities from outside of Israel, that they could see that they could touch, they could almost taste that they'd properly put their hope in to deliver this. Yet this adding had only taken away. It had taken away from solely living a life of faith in God, being the special people that they were supposed to be, those out of and unlike the rest of the world, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, those who love the Lord their God with all their heart with all their soul and with all their strength and to have his commands upon their hearts where they received his good but Israel realizing this they're returning to the Lord so Samuel says uh, they are to get rid of the idols commit to the Lord and serve him only how Israel behaves, their obedience, will ultimately show if God is enough, is number one. That will validate their repentance and show their faith as genuine. Okay? And as you know, as Christians today, that's still true. Jesus said it in the upper room. John repeated the same thing in his letter to the churches. So Israel gathers to give corporate expression to their sin and to their failure. And it's a wonderful moment of actually, actually returning to the Lord with all their heart. It's great. But it's also a great opportunity for the Philistines to end Israel in one foul swoop for good. It gets serious really quickly. The atmosphere just changed. This is a testing. Israel are all gathered together in one place. And they are looking down upon the pointy end of their extinction event. What are they going to do? They've put all their eggs in one basket with the Lord. They are all in. And they are wildly vulnerable because of it. They're trusting everything to God. So what's going to happen? Will he come good on his promises with them? You know, it's the first time in a long time that Israel are actually not hedging their bets when it comes to life and spirituality. So the people cry out in trust Samuel intercedes and sacrifices for them, and the Lord answers a rescue. We see a rescue. The Lord is there to help his people. With battle lines um, drawn up, the Lord leads the charge on Israel's behalf. He engages the enemy, and he single-handedly puts them to flight. He thunders. From heaven. Do you see that? He thunders from heaven. Shadows fall, clouds churn thick, sky goes dark, and boom after boom ring out at a deafening volume. Ringing the ears and thumping the chest, with echoes rumbling around the hills, line after line of the enemy ranks shudder and cower at such an attack. Pandemonium breaks out across the army and the Philistines scatter. Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Israel, thunders. And we hear some of Hannah's song in chapter one, rise through the claps of thunder. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He brings about a comprehensive victory. It is astonishing. All Israel does is conduct kind of operation mop up um, after the battle is won. And do you see there in the the passage and action how the Lord totally exerts his authority over the so-called storm god Baal? And his um, consort, Astral using thunder. I love the kind of veiled humour and irony of this situation. God uses the very means of rescue of what this God is supposed to be about to show his supremacy over the false gods of the surrounding nations. It's pretty cool. And so in this moment, renders any allegiance to these beliefs futile, shows impossible to fulfill the promise of these deities to provide that life and legacy of abundance that Israel is striving for. And you know, that has something important to say to what ultimately spiritual beliefs and practices outside of Christianity have to really offer for our significance and our happiness, doesn't it? Be sure to note this. The Lord is the one who defeats Israel's enemy, reestablishes the lost borders there, gives Israel peace, protection, and a distinctiveness compared to other people of great worth. He is all they need, and he is the one to give them all that they need, and the one to look for, look to for that. That's what goes on through this battle. This event shows you and I and all Israel the Lord is the undisputed sovereign. He is the great king, the king of Israel and supreme over the nations and even its deities. It reminds Israel once again of who the Lord is and the relationship that they have with him. And it's pretty simple. It's pretty amazing. It's worth writing down. It is the Lord, the great king's rescue, and all the benefits that come with that is experienced when his people trust him and live that faith out in obedience. It's so simple but profound. The great king's rescue and all the benefits that come with it is experienced when his people trust him and live that faith out in obedience. So they return, are rescued, and a restoration takes place. So a restoration. Now to mark the moment, Samuel builds what is like a war memorial. But instead of the memorial stone um, serving to kind of remember the names of the fallen, its purpose is to provide a memorial um, to the memory of God's mercy and God's salvation. The stone called Ebenezer shows the astonishing victory enjoyed when his people are all in heart and soul with the Lord, their king. That is what lacked at the Battle of Ebenezer 20 years before. The name the stone Ebenezer put up here at Mizpah states the decisive reversal of of that great failure and all that loss that had taken place. But this stone of help also, and importantly, calls to memory the many, many points in um, their history of the Lord's help, of the Lord's help to Abraham, his help in Egypt, his help in the wilderness, his help to Joshua, his help in judges just to start without drilling down for all the way the Lord helps. And at the same time, this stone states the Lord's help in the future, past, present, future. As has always been the case and will be, Israel are to live lives of trust displayed in obedience. That's worship really. In light of the great King's merciful rescue, As they enjoy being his special people. Lest they forget that. And uni fellowship. Lest we forget that. It is a cause of remembrance for you and I. That same truth in a later time. There is an Ebenezer. A stone of help. We must recall. Keep close to our hearts to live. Now as the people of the great king. Must be what we as leaders lead out of as those under this great king. A day up a hill where one faithful Israelite surrounded by all those who had made themselves his enemy, he was giving his express of trust in the Lord. As he cried out, the lines of David's song rose up, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they are doing. It was on their behalf, offering forgiveness and a return to the Lord for a wayward people, a humanity that had forgotten. At his intercession and at the moment of his sacrifice, as he hung there, the sky went dark, the sun disappeared, the earth shook, the rocks split, the people shuddered. He Thundered. And once again, the rescue of the great king was seen. This time, the final and the greatest victory. We see Jesus, the Christ, God's king, lead the battle against the enemy. He devastatingly routs humanity's enemies that had held sway and had taken over, pursuing them all the way to the grave driving sin away, defeating death and disarming the devil. And so the one able to restore to us all the good that we lost. And so for anyone, for you, those of you who have turned in faith and obedience to Jesus the Christ, the cross becomes our Ebenezer. It's worth writing down. At the cross, we see God's generous help to sinners. We raise up the cross and we say, thus far, the Lord has helped us. And if he has helped us by giving his own son, then surely he will bring us safely home to glory, won't he? He did not spare his own son, but gave up for us all everything. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Romans. For him, come thou fount with every blessing. Contains, here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I have come. Thy great help, I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. You return first to the Lord by one getting rid of of what is stopping you turning to Jesus with all your heart. You commit to the Lord and you serve him only. That is, you repent and you have faith. And that's what we're on about, isn't it? As a mission group, that's what we're calling people to. And that is a vulnerable position, okay? Being all in heart and soul, that is scary, But that is how you experience the Lord's rescue and all the blessings that come with that. And that doesn't change. Life with God continues to be one of trust in his leadership. When we are tempted to bring in other things to deliver what we feel we lack, what you think you need, what I don't reckon God is providing me. When that happens, look to the cross When we're scared, when we feel helpless, you feel like a failure and that runs deep, look to the cross, put all your eggs in that basket. This day of rescue is what reminds us. It calls us back to be all in and provides us the way of return, rescue and restoration. Our Ebenezer is where we can stand in awe of um, and stand in view of God's mercy. And so offer our bodies as living sacrifices that is holy and pleasing to God, as this is your spiritual act of worship. And where we will know help not to conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, able to test and approve what God's will is. His good and pleasing and perfect will. Unity fellowship. Any leadership you inspire to starts with that. It is founded on that and it doesn't move from that. In fact, you are supposed to be exemplary. I am supposed to be exemplary in that simple reality of living by faith in the cross and the crown of Jesus. God is the great king. But we need another king. My second point. We need another king. As the curtains close on chapter seven, all is well. Did you see that? It's idyllic really. Now as the curtains open on chapter eight, see things have changed. It's time for Samuel's hand over and transition to a new leadership so who is going to take the place um, of this and who's going to move the people forward well Samuel's he's got a really good plan when Samuel grew old he appointed his sons as judges for Israel the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second was Abijah and they served at Bathsheba but his sons did not walk in his ways They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Hang on a second. Two wayward sons of Israel's priests. It is history re-repeating itself. It's chapter two all over again. So it's a bit of a face plant moment. You're doing kind of what you're dad in Eli did so seeing this Israel's leaders Israel gets together and they bring their request so the request of the people so all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah they said to him you're old and your sons do not walk in your ways now appoint a king to lead us such as all the other nations have Pause, underline that last phrase, such as all the other nations have. It's important, okay? But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as king as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, and let them know that the king who will reign over them will do. A king. Okay, that's new. Israel has never had a king before. This is the moment. This is an historical um, point, Okay. Is where you stick a something down in your Bible, in the Bible story, it's um, unprecedented. You can feel the difference. Faced with Samuel's choice of uh, leadership and wanting, I guess I suppose, to not go back to the mess of Eli's sons, it does seem eminently sensible to request a king, right? After, God, after all, God allowed it. In Deuteronomy 17, if you would have looked that up, God made provision for Israel to have a king when they were in the land. They've hit the button on that. So what's the problem? Well, it's demanding a king such as the other nations have. A king that they go on to say that will lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. They're asking for the wrong kind of king, aren't they? And that shows that they're asking for the wrong reasons. They're demanding out of fear, not out of faith. Out of fear, not faith. They've totally skipped over the characteristics of the type of king they would have when they wanted one. It's like the idolatry of chapter seven that they had turned from, but with a new twist. Not a deity of their choosing, but a monarch of their choosing. When faced again with the uncertain prospect of their security, their identity, their sense of nation, this is their solution. This time there is no calling to God and asking for his help. No priority is given to wanting a king like God had spelled out. They want to bring a king in. They feel that they need to provide any help that they want. And to their mind, this is the way to get it. But this is the problem. God is the great king. We just saw who is king. God, see the irony. God literally went before them and fought their battle in the previous chapter. As one preacher says, uh, they were not to trust in the size of their army for security to be constantly and fervishly trying to accomplish in order to establish their identity and give them a sense of meaning. Their relationship with God was supposed to be the source of those things. This is the rejection of God. And remember, this is this is what made them totally different from all the other nations and what set them apart was to not be like that. It's what made them salt and light and city on a hill. It's having the Lord as their great king, living a life of faith in him, expressed in obedience, that was what fundamentally defined them compared to other people, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is what transformed. Conforming to the ways of the world wouldn't add, wouldn't enhance, wouldn't advance one bit. It would only take away Clock that as a Christian. And that's still what defines us today as God's people, doesn't it? Us, uni fellowship. Peter says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you'd not receive mercy, But now you have received mercy. Any king that they asked for was to lead and protect them in this, wasn't he? Under God, not autonomous to him. And not different to his ways. Yet in Israel's past and at this request, they're not walking out on God all together, are they? That's not really kind of what is the case. It just seems here that they want more. They seem to need someone or something to help them make them feel safe, significant, happy even. Their request shows something really important. God as their king Doesn't seem enough. Once again, by looking to the world and what it offers, they're dividing their heart. And God considered this a rejection of him. It's another moment in their history where they have failed to trust him. And I want to ask you, where have you done this? Where have you said, God, you're not enough? Sure, you'll say, um, God is great. Jesus is my king. Of course, uh, of, 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 of course. But I need something more to ensure my significance and my happiness. What have you given yourself to as the value add to your relationship with God? Maybe you've said something like, God is great. You are my king. But give me some concrete thing to do to give me a sense of achievement and respect as I'm kind of seen doing them. Make sure that there is the right religious elements in the Sunday service or the right practices at play in, the, in this Christian group. Give me that position on that committee that exec that youth group team keep me involved in the important church or uni fellowship going ons. so you're asking to be useful and to contribute and that's not wrong what's wrong is that you demand these things from fear not faith fear that without your concrete input and of what you do the quality and the stability of your faith and standing in the community will fade and become lost. Or you might say, God, I do trust you, but I got to see some uh, career advancement, decent grades, successful ministry in my little world, promotion of some sort, a scholar success like my mates have or the person sitting over there in this room. I don't know if that's the case, but it's okay to ask for those things, but if you simply can't be happy without good work prospects before you, some kind of professional progression, um, higher pay, better grades, that shows that you're probably being motivated by by fear. I can't be happy, feel secure, or reach my potential until I'm at this qualification successful in this application, this level of income, this position or significance. Or maybe you said, and, and this may be a little bit off in distance time wise, but it will become, if it's not life for you now, you, you'll, you'll lean into it in coming, coming times. You might find yourself asking God, demanding God to give you a loving spouse. Maybe healthy and good intellectual kids into the future. A house in a decent, nice suburb. And then a cute dog in there as well. Give me the family lifestyle that looks like this. And there's nothing wrong wanting to enjoy a stable, wholesome and whole family. I do. Um, But when that's driven by fear, then I'll never be satisfied and feel adequate enough without it until I match up with all the other families that have arrived there. You see, uni fellowship, whatever that thing is, and however on target they are or not, what you demand in addition to God is your king. That is how you become like Israel here in this chapter. That becomes your answer to the question, what kind of king um, does God's people need? Becomes your answer to the question, what kind of king does God's people need? And in turn, this will mark and it will map out your leadership motivations and methods. I want you to listen into this as a group. Okay? Rejection of God is not usually walking away from God it is usually demanding something in addition to God. Okay? Rejection of God is not usually walking away from God. It is usually demanding something in addition to God. So what might the consequences of this choice be, of this king, of maybe your king? Well, God tells Samuel to tell Israel what to expect from any king you demand in addition to God. And he double-checks that this is really what they want for themselves. Samuel told all these words to the Lord, to the people who were asking for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage. Your maidservants and manservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief. From the king that you've chosen and the Lord will not answer you in that day. He will take, 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 take. And in the end, it's going to lead to your enslavement. Your demand will end up demanding a great cost that one day you wish you never paid. Are you sure? God asks. Are you? This is a warning for us that the kings of this world that we demand perhaps actual rulers of society or figuratively such as good health, real success, true love, decent money, respect and acceptability. Um, Those examples that's before. They won't simply fail to deliver on their promises, but they'll actually wind up enslaving us. Any king other than God that you give yourself to will keep exacting from you. Because without that king, there's no way to get the good that you're after. So you'll work more hours, you'll volunteer more time, you'll spend more money, you'll get more stuff, you'll commit to more projects, you'll give more of a say, insert yourself in more. Give more attention and bend what is around you to move you ever closer to obtaining that goal, reaching this place, doubling down on any losses along the way and excusing or justifying the cracks that form in friendships, family, health and character. And realise that you're not giving the 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 bottom of the barrel away. You are having the best of you taken and you won't be able to get yourself out of it. The warning here, uni is every king but God enslaves. Whatever king you give your life to, will take, take, and take. Write that down. Now circle it. And do the hard work when you get home tonight to figure out what you're giving yourself to and what you're prone to. And I bet any leadership of yours across the years that is driven by fear will be one that ends up taking, taking, and taking as well. Are you sure? Are you sure you want to give yourself to a king that operates like the world? Remember who you are. Remember who he is. Return. In the last few minutes, the resolve the resolve they ask they get and we're left hanging ready to hear in the next act just how much this king will take for them cue mikey later but israel needed a king different from the nations didn't they they needed a king like god and all of us need a king that we can safely give our all to that doesn't operate like the one Demanded here, don't we? I need that as central to my Christian leadership. You do to yours. And this mission group does to it. And it would be a while for Israel and the world. But it would be Jesus who would show his self to be the king that Israel needed. Not wanted. But needed. Jesus was the one utterly unlike those of all the nations who was the one who had said himself for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many the true king did not come to be served but to give to give to give and to give so those following his lead would experience freedom not slavery he could deliver the good that the people feared that they wouldn't get when Pilate asked whether he is the king of the Jews in John Jesus replied my kingdom is not of this world my kingdom is not of the other nations that is what is needed Yet God still wasn't enough, was he? The demand in this passage, I think, is actually closed by another demand that signals the climactic rejection of God. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar. They still want a king like all the other nations. And that preference is shared by many, maybe you still now, yet it was this rejection that led to Jesus giving his life under their treason, bearing their sin and shame. Mine too. So that the good that we long for And more so, we didn't know that we needed, can be enjoyed. So we'd know freedom, freedom from obtaining, that striving to obtain, have forgiveness from sin and help given when we fail and the rest of being truly safe. No other king can deliver that. That is the kind of leader that we need. It is God that we finally see in his King Jesus that comes to rescue and all the benefits that come with that is experienced when his people trust him and live that faith out in obedience. In Jesus, when he comes to rescue, all the benefits that come with that is experienced when his people trust him and live that faith out in obedience. Is that enough for you? a moment to reflect on that and then we'll uh, see.